1: continue then our study of the book of Exodus, and tonight we're going to cover chapter 10 and 11. Specifically, we're going to go through four points, and hopefully we'll get through all of them. Uh, The first is obviously the eighth and ninth plagues, which is what we're looking at right now. The second is this business of Pharaoh's hardening his heart or having his heart hardened. We've already touched upon it, but we're going to go through it in more detail tonight, We're going to also look at St. Paul's view of Pharaoh's hardening of the heart, because St. Paul does comment on that passage. And then, if we have time, we're going to go through something I call apocalyptic deconstruction, which is something we see in Scripture in a number of places where, effectively, God rolls back creation. It's an act of decreation. So, we tend to always think of... um, scripture and particularly of the creation of the world as a linear process where God creates the world and sustains it all the way to the end. And that is true. However, it is also true that in the human order there are these acts of creation and decreation that happens consistently and constantly where God will bless a country, bless a political power and then remove that blessing away from them. Hence they are brought up and they are brought down. And these actions on God's part where a nation is brought up and a nation is brought low are really acts of creation and decreation and apocalyptic language is used to describe these events. So let's see if we make it through. It's going to be a very um, interactive session. I'll be asking you quite a lot of questions, soliciting a lot of your answers because I want you to think it through. Um, You will find that much of what I'm going to be talking about is... Counterintuitive. It is not the way we think. Um, or rather, the way we think doesn't always match the way Scripture uh, presents the truth to us. So we're going to have to work through it. So let's first talk about the eighth and ninth plagues. The very first thing you notice about them is that the plagues, the first seven plagues, are addressed to the Egyptians. From 1 to 7, God is speaking to the Egyptians. And I've told you last time, and I think it bears repeating, that God does not speak of them as plagues. We do. That's the very first difference between our perception of the events in Egypt and the way God perceives of them or speaks of them. He never uses the word plagues for any of these plagues except the last. We call them the 10 plagues. The scriptures never call them 10 plagues. Uh, at least not in in uh, in the time of Moses now god calls them signs and wonders signs and wonders and why does he call them signs and wonders what is so what is he signifying through them and what is so wonderful about them peter true absolutely true the fact that Uh, It's addressing these particular powers of Egypt, whether economically, whether through nature, whether in their agriculture, in every facet, including the light of day, as we see in the the 8th ninth plagues, where the three days of darkness, all of these are signs that God gives them, and particularly that we will see in the the 10th plague, the killing of the son of Pharaoh, uh, effectively signify that the dynasty of Pharaoh comes to an end. Right, and therefore, he is no God. But there's something more direct that I'm after, right, Anthony. Mm-hmm. That he is one true God, yes. Effectively, God says the following. That you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, that you may know that I am the Lord. So what he's doing in Egypt isn't just for the Egyptians. It is also for the Jews. And God wants them to know that he dealt harshly with the Egyptians. That you may know that I am the Lord. Why is it that in dealing harshly with the Egyptians, they will know he is the Lord? What is he trying to tell them there? Well, one meaning, anytime Israel has an enemy, God will deal harshly with them. Therefore, he is our Lord. Yeah, And that is a meaning that actually the Jews, the Israelites, will hold on to. Despite what the prophets tell them. That's not what God has in mind. He has in mind something different. To understand this will bring it down to something we can understand. We can comprehend. We can deal with. If you have a child who is stubborn he is absolutely stubborn and he refuses to listen what do you do do you a sit the child down and talk to him and tell him that what he's doing is naughty and that it is not appropriate and that he should stop B. do you ship him away to some far-off civilization where you can sell him as a slave. C, do you discipline him? Which of these three would you do? Forget about God, forget about the Egyptians, forget everything. What would you do? You're dealing with a specific situation, what would you do? Aidan? You discipline him. Why would you discipline him? And why is it important that he stops? I mean, think about it for a second. What is easier for you discipline him what is easier for you to discipline him to ship him off or to just ignore him which of these three is easier for you right so if you ignored him and he continued to do what he wants what is he going to think about you is he going to be happy or sad so what does he think about you are you a nice guy or, or a bad guy are you, but are you really a nice guy? No, that's in a nutshell. In a nutshell, this is scripture right there. What we just discussed right now, that's it. Let's go over it again. This is a child who is absolutely stubborn. Why do you discipline him? So, you would discipline him because you'd hope that he will what. Turn away from his ways, right? Okay. Let's assume now that this child is so absolutely, absolutely determined never to turn away. It's not going to happen. He's set in his way, he will never change. What do you do then? What would you do? He will not change. You try to discipline, he laughs at you, he just ignores you, He keeps on trashing the house. He doesn't care. What do you do? Yes. Maria? Severe punishment. What is the purpose of punishment? He doesn't care. He just doesn't care. He just does worse things. He gets worse and worse and worse. Yes. Brainwash him. Hmm. That's an approach. Can God brainwash us? Why wouldn't he? Exactly, because of free will. Therefore, we, the brainwashing is, uh, is not an option. What would you do? Here's the deal. And I want you to understand this, because this is not obvious. It's not obvious at all, because we don't function this way. If God is merciful to this child, so, so this child is absolutely determined to do evil. He will not change. He will not come back. Okay. First of all, do you believe that our people who are like that? Well, we're just studying one of them. His name is Pharaoh right now. Yeah? Okay. If God is wanting to show someone like Pharaoh mercy, what does he do in a situation like this one? Louder. Kill him. That's the merciful thing. No, no, no. We're trying to understand how God works. This is not about us. We're trying to understand how God works. Why is killing him in this case would be a merciful thing? Exactly. Exactly. Because by killing him, God prevents this person from increasing his pain in hell. Do you understand that? Just as there are degrees of glory in heaven there are degrees of damnation in hell. goes both ways. Okay. That would be God's mercy. So, God killing the son of Pharaoh is what then? Mercy. Mercy for that kid. Yeah? Conversely, if God wants to show His wrath, what would He do? He let this person prosper in his way. He let this person prosper in his way. Because in doing so, what is happening to this person? He's increasing his punishment in hell. Do you understand? That's how the Lord works with us. And that is why sometimes we wonder, how come the world prosper? All these people who do not believe in God, who are who shun his law, who do the opposite things. How come they're prospering? And we, Catholic, we're trying to live our faith. We're scraping here and there and we're poor and we're this and that and the other. Where are you, Lord? Well, he's right here. He's showing you mercy. He's extending his mercy to you because in allowing you to struggle the way you do, what is he doing to you? And what does that mean, showing mercy in this case? What happens to you in heaven, what is, going to, what is going to happen in heaven? He's extending a greater glory to you. Yeah? That's His mercy. Whereas these folks who are doing the opposite of His will, who shun His will, who hates His church, who, who, who despise the Pope, and keep on going their way, God is showing what? His wrath. The more you think covenantly, the more you understand that the covenant is governing your life and mine and governing the world and everything in it, the less you are anxious, the less you're worried about the state of the world. Anxiety comes from the thought, the notion, that somehow the world is running haywire outside the control of God. That somehow these things are happening out there are overpowering God or, you know, things got so bad because there was a bug in the system that the only thing God can do is really reboot the system and that's all He could do. Start all over again. And you hear that all over all, over and over again. The end of the world is right at the corner. This is because people ignore the way or do not understand how God governs the world. He governs the world through this covenant whereby He will bless you if you obey the covenant, and He will curse you if you do not. But the blessings and the cursings are not what we think, because we interpret blessings and cursings in terms of this world, in terms of the world we live in here, in terms of material goods, in terms of health, in terms of success, in terms of dreams come true, in terms of desires fulfilled. This is how we we judge blessings and curses. If all these things are happening, God is blessing me. If none of these things are happening, God is cursing me. Health and wealth gospel, you've heard of that? Expression, health and wealth gospel? Yeah? It's a very... um, It's out there, people believing that if you're healthy, if you're wealthy, God is blessing you. If you're poor and wretched, God is cursing you. Yeah, so the, the fundamental thing for us is to understand that we cannot interpret signs at face value i can't tell you if you're doing something and you're successful whether it's a blessing or a curse because i don't know what's in your heart you do so i can't say oh this person is you know billionaire therefore god is cursing him or this person is is poor and has nothing to eat therefore he's a saint and have i can't say any of this none of that could be said we can't there are no hard and fast rules that we can apply very simply to establish where one is, we can't do any of this because it depends on the circumstance. It depends on what one is doing and how he's responding to God's will. But I I I know that these, when you're done with this study and you go back to the world, your mind is going to flip back and you're going to go back thinking the the worldly way. And you judge everything that happens to you the worldly way. Your parent tells you no for something, you're immediately disappointed. And your answer is, the standard answer, universal among all kids, is that's unfair. Right away, it's unfair. Why? Because we are oriented towards this health and wealth gospel. If I get what I want, and if my parents give it to me, and they give it to me right now, then everything is good. I'm happy. And if they don't, and they hold it back, withhold it from me, then I'm unhappy. And the process of growing up is to really become a person of the covenant. Because only when you become a person of the covenant do you truly become a Catholic. Do you understand that? So, back to Egypt. The reason why God tells them that you may tell your children and grandchildren you must pass on that truth. You may tell them you must pass the truth on How I dealt harshly with the Egyptians that you may know that I am the Lord. Dealing harshly with the Egyptians in this case is what? What was God showing forth in dealing harshly with the Egyptians? His mercy that you may know that I am the merciful Lord. It isn't just about I'm dealing harshly with the Egyptians because they're persecuting you. Therefore, I'm here for you and I'll always deal. That, That was not it at all. The intent is to, to show Moses and all the children afterwards that God loves us so much that he will not allow us to fall so deeply into sin that we would not be redeemed. And he shows us this in dealing with Egyptians. Now, what does he do to the Egyptians? Well, the expected things, right? Take away their toys. Take away the things that they like. Take away the daylight. Take away their health. Take away whatever needs to be taken away, for them to do what? To say, it is the Lord. Yeah? It is the Lord. So, realize that sometimes when you pray for somebody to be converted, okay, when you're praying for someone to be converted, what are you calling upon the head of that person, usually? Yes, but mercy doesn't usually come like a white cloud, that sits nicely over somebody's head. Mercy comes in the form of a plague of some sort. Health-wise, he, he loses his business, he ends up being a bum on the street for a time before being called back to be a priest. Right? Yeah. That's how, oftentimes, God has to deal with us, like he did with the Egyptians, to show forth his mercy. His mercy, right? I'm always... I shudder at the thought that Lord Cromwell, who was one of the architects of the English Revolution against the church, died peacefully in his bed. He's the one, he was among, he was, he was, he was a, he, was a um, he, he sent so many people to their death, but as far as he was concerned, he died peacefully in his bed. That is something to be scared about. When a sinner can die peaceful in his bed, it means, he, it means he reached such level of um, obduracy, of having turned evil into good and good into evil, that he doesn't see it anymore in his conscience, doesn't even disturb him. And that is something to be afraid of. All right. Now, you will also notice that throughout the whole series of events, Pharaoh appears as very fickle. First, he consents to the Israelites' request to leave the land with all their families and possessions. In verses 8 through 10, he said literally to Moses, May the Lord thus be with you as I send you and your children. See, there is evil before you. But then, just as quickly, it becomes clear that he intended to hold back their families and to send only the men. At this point, Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence and the plague was called down on Egyptians. And then, in the ninth plague, the same thing happens. Pharaoh was down to his last ruse. He's trying again to do something. You can go, leave the children. It's always the children at the end of the day. It's always the children. It's always about the children. Leave the children but you can go. Actually, first the woman and the children could go, but not their livestock. Then, that was not acceptable. Then it was, you can go, but you can leave your children. So, fundamentally, what does that represent? It represents fickleness. What is fickleness? Being fickle, what does that mean? Um, yes, Anthony? Undecided. Yes, undecided to an extreme. I'll do it, I won't. I will do it. No, I won't. I'll do it. I'll do it. No, I won't. So fickleness is a vice which is against which virtue? Prudence. It is a vice set against the virtue of prudence. All right. And despite of it all, and that's important for us as we move into the second part of this conversation, of this uh, study, Despite it all, God is patient with him, right? So when we talk about the hardening of moses 's heart we have, of Pharaoh's heart, we only think of it as sort of a, a linear thing. God has just decided to harden his heart because just God decided to do we don 't really know why you know it 's a great mystery there's really not much of a mystery really, if you see what is going on let 's see how this hardening of the heart works first, when Moses um, speaks to the Lord, the Lord tells him. I make you as God to Pharaoh, chapter 7, verse 1. I'll make you as God to Pharaoh. That's pretty astounding. This is very powerful. So what does that mean? Why is he making Moses as God to Pharaoh? Is that an act of wrath on God's part towards Pharaoh? Is he trying to harden Pharaoh's heart by making Moses as God to Pharaoh? Let's put it this way. Pardon? It means that the abilities it gives Moses, the signs that Moses can perform, are those of a divinity. So let's look at it this way Superman lands right here, stands amongst us, and says, I'm Catholic. Is that, do you take that as God cursing you? How do you take that as? It's a blessing, right? Because that, I mean, it's Superman. Come on. Okay? So what is, what is God doing to Pharaoh when he makes Moses as God to Pharaoh? It's a, it's a blessing. He's trying to show him the power of God. But then God himself adds, Pharaoh will not listen to you. At this point, he's not saying, but I will cause Pharaoh not to listen to you He's just stating a fact. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Is that troubling that God said that? Hmm? See, we think it's troubling because we don't bring it back down to our levels. I'll show you how it's not troubling at all. I can say, if I have two kids that I've known for a long time, and one of them is hoarding three pounds of chocolate, and the second one is sad, I can say to the second one, okay, you can go ask Jimmy for some chocolate, but don't be disappointed if he's not going to give you any. Am I being God in saying that? No. I just know how Jimmy operates. If he's got three pounds of chocolate, Jimmy's going to eat all three pounds in one sitting, and then he's going to get sick. That's what he does. Okay? That's all. It's it's a pedagogy. It's psychology on God's part to, let, to prepare Moses for the response because Moses is thinking, woohoo, I am super Moses. Right? It's done. It's taken care of. I know Pharaoh. I've been there. I lived among those Egyptians. I show up like God. He's going to fall down on his feet. He's going to worship me. We're in good shape. Let me put you this way. Um, You have a friend who doesn't believe. He doesn't believe. Okay? God appears to you and says to you, I'm going to give you the ability to go see your friend. And when you're there, you're going to be able to bring forth life in his room from thin air. You're going to be able to create a whole universe for your friend. On the spot. A whole brand new universe. What are you thinking? What what, What are you going through? What state of mind are you in if God were to tell you this? Okay, let's not think about ourselves selfishly. Rather, let's think about our friend. What are we thinking? Come on! You're going to create planets for, for this person. Did you understand the power? Okay, you're creating a whole universe. I mean, I don't know. You're creating anything this, this, this kid wants you can do. You can let him fly. There you go. What are you thinking at this point? But it's your friend. It is you and your friend. It's not some atheist out there, somebody you know. Remember, Moses lived among the Egyptians. He's not going to a stranger. Okay? What is your... How how would you feel? Right on the spot. Yes, Maria? I mean, it's amazing, right? What God is doing for this person, it's incredible... Look at what God is giving him. And he tells you on the spot, he'll not believe you. So what goes to your mind on the spot if you were, God tell you this? Pardon? Okay, come on, come on. You're not thinking it through. Think it through. God just told you, I'm mean, going to give you all this power. You're going to do all this stuff. And he adds, he's going to believe you. So what is the question that comes to your mind? Bingo. Why are you giving it to me then? What is this, an exercise in futility? An exercise in frustration? Why are you doing this? What's the point? You give it to me. You give me all this stuff I can do. I'm going to go do it over there. And going like, Why are you doing it? Can't you come up with something better? See, this is how you engage God. This is how you engage Scripture. As long as you keep this sort of a piety, Oh well, God, whatever you say, it must be true. You know, Hey says, "Pass me the salt." You 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 don't get to you don't receive the graces that God wishes to give you if you don't contend with Scripture. Why is God doing this? What's the point? Why give you powers that seem to do absolutely nothing? Yes, there are two things that need to be understood. First of all, that God is just and that God is merciful. Without these two attributes of God, we have a really hard time believing in Him. We must believe in His justice, we must believe in His mercy. When God goes to such extreme, what is He highlighting on the one hand? He's highlighting His mercy and His justice, and at the same time, He's highlighting the guilt of man. This explains why he went to such an extreme and died on the cross. You you understand that when, when our lady brought our Lord to the temple, when he was circumcised, the drops of blood that fell on the floor when he was circumcised were enough for the Father to save the world. That would have been enough. Do you understand that? Why did Jesus have to go to such an extreme to die on the cross? <clears throat> Maria? No. See, it's not just a question of example because we, we at the end of the day, we're really not touched by examples. What we're touched by is innocence, mercy. When we see that, that's what really penetrates our heart and converts us. And that's what happened. So here, God is showing forth His sovereignty and His mercy towards Pharaoh. He spares no effort. That's the message. I am saying this in the context of God hardening His heart. Because we tend to have a very one sided view of this business of hardening the heart. We only see God hardening His heart, we miss everything else. You understand? Then, we go through this list of hardening of the heart, and we notice the following. Initially, Scripture tells us that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. It doesn't say God is hardening his heart. So so in 7.14, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. In 8.15, he, Pharaoh, hardened his heart. In 8.19, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. In 9.7, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. In 9.12, first time but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. 9.34, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. 9.35, so the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Then in 10, I have hardened his heart. Ten one. 10.20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. 10.27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. 11.10, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. We start with Pharaoh hardening his own heart. There is a moment where both are happening, and then after that, God is hardening his heart. So scripture is proceeding in a very deliberate fashion as these plagues are happening. To better understand this, we need to realize that it wasn't just about hardening the heart, it was about the softening of the heart. God did a lot to soften Pharaoh's heart first. So all these phases where you hear, but Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, it's in response to God trying to soften his heart. And so this is how God is extending mercy to him. The prayers of Moses, in 8.8, 9.28, 10.17, Pharaoh asks Moses to pray for him. Pray to the Lord, pray for me. So the prayers of Moses are supposed to soften his heart. The testimony of his own magicians, in 8.19, this is the finger of God. That's another way of extending mercy to someone by telling him the truth. This is the finger of God. His own magicians are telling him the truth. By moving him to partial obedience, I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord in eight eight, and go sacrifice to your God within the land. I will let you go, only you shall not go very far away. eight twenty five, twenty eight, twenty and and uh, and um, following. Go only, let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Ten twenty-four. By moving him to partial penitence, I have sinned this time. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Nine twenty-seven. I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sins. 10 16. Pharaoh acknowledges guilt. He acknowledges the guilt, but he went right on being guilty. And it is actually one of these very nasty vices that we can have. And it manifests itself when we do a wrong. And our standard answer is, oh, sorry, keep on walking. That's it. We acknowledge something, we just keep on doing it. By not really, truly repenting. Not thinking about, how do I change? How do I stop doing this? Sorry is is usually meant, especially by the children, to their parents. Let's not talk about it. It's a way to guard against really dealing with the issue. I don't want to change. I don't want to deal with it. I'm just saying sorry to pacify you, and that's it. And and the, and and the funny thing is that we, as children, and all the other children, think that the parents don't get it. So that's the sort of behaviour that Pharaoh has. He is fickle. He keeps on doing what he's doing, despite all these occasions where God extended to him mercy. So. Here we see, though, so so effectively what what God does, and you see he's acting very logically, he sends Moses to Pharaoh, he gives him signs and wonders, he allows him to perform all these signs so that Pharaoh may repent, so that Egypt may repent in seeing the power of God. Pharaoh persists and persists and persists, and he refuses, refuses, refuses the grace of God, at which point God stops extending mercy towards him. And when he stopped extending mercy towards him, which, by the way, is Pharaoh's own free will. Now, you find it maybe very sur- surprising, but if a, uh, if a kid comes to, to um, his father and says, uh, you want to play a game? And the father says no the first time. The kid might do it a second time, maybe do it 20 times. What happens after the 20th? What is the conclusion that the kid reaches? He doesn't want to play with me me, ever. There's finality, right? See how natural it is? Well, why do we assume that somehow God is obligated in trying forever to get somebody to play with Him? You see that? If you say no to God sufficiently, guess what God is going to do? He's going to leave you alone. God respects your free will. He gave it to you, so He leaves you alone. And when He leaves you alone, what does He do? He takes with Him His grace. And when grace leaves your heart, what happens to your heart? The heart Why? Because grace is to your heart. What water is to a tree? What air is to lungs? Without grace, there's no life. The heart hardens. Make sense? Yeah? You see how this whole thing works? There's no mystery in it. It isn't, oh, well, you know, it's a way for Scripture to say that everything is under God's control and nothing escapes God's control. But really, God didn't do any of this. It's just Pharaoh. When you go with this kind of explanation reductive explanation you completely miss the pedagogy that god uses with us you miss how god functions with us and when you understand it you go yeah well i would yeah, i do the same thing i mean how many of you would have done as much as god did with egypt there's this guy who doesn't believe do you actually send him do you actually go pick somebody, give him all the powers, send him to this person repeatedly, and give him ability to perform sign after sign after sign? So this—do you do that? You might pray for the person, right? Light a candle or something. So tell me now, who is more merciful: us or God? Yeah. See why it's a mistake in calling them plagues. Because when we call them plagues, all we're thinking is, you know, wrathful God, vengeful God, coming down with fire and brimstone about to destroy Egypt because there's just nothing that he wants. The impatient God. And we miss the point utterly. Yeah? Now, I spent all this time on this because, as God said, this was set for our instruction. The way God dealt with Egypt was an example of how he deals with us today, on a personal basis, as a family, as a nation. The same thing. Yeah? Okay, so let's just... um, It's a good segue into what St. Paul writes about um, the hardening of the heart. In uh, Romans 9.11, St. Paul refers to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and to the hardening of Israel. And both of the old and the new, both St. Paul and the the ancient narrator, do the same thing. They hold this tension between God's utter sovereignty and man's free will. And I told you already, and this is something we're going to have to revisit, that neither do we deny uh, predestination, nor do we deny free will. But we hold both together. So, St. Paul does exactly the same in speaking of God, utter sovereignty and yet humankind's moral freedom. And so what he says is that physical descent from Abraham is insufficient to qualify one as a spiritual child of Abraham. And he appeals to Genesis where he says that both Isaac and Ishmael were physical sons of Abraham but only one was the child of the promise. Both Jacob and Esau were children of Isaac, but Esau was passed over in favor of Jacob. Paul thus, Paul thus had, has addressed the question of God's fidelity by showing God's principle of selectivity in operation in patriarchal history. God is selective. Do you understand? God is selective. Which translates into what I've told you before, and we have a hard time with it. God loves all, but God does not love all equally. And I'll tell you, one of the fundamental reasons why we have a problem with this notion that God doesn't love all equally is because of our pride. The truly humble soul doesn't think, how come God loves this person more than he loves me? That's unfair. The truly humble soul realizes the depth of the human heart's depravity, realizes that in all justice, we were condemned to hell, and is simply rejoicing that God had saved him or her. And that's it. Never mind that God loves somebody else. The mere fact that God loves me and extends mercy to me is incredible. And a humble soul rejoices in that fact and doesn't mind that God loves, even if God loved everybody else more than he loved this humble soul, this humble soul is happy that God loves her. And it's enough. And by the way, this is how our lady is. That's her humility. We have a problem with this because we are pride. So as I told you last time, we were all all indebted to God. Right? Lisa over here owed him two billion dollars. Anthony owed him two hundred million. Steve owed him ten bucks. Right? I owed him forty billion dollars. We're everybody, all of us. Well maybe not ten, but a hundred million, let's say, or some, enough money that he cannot ever repay it. I cannot ever... None of us can repay it in a lifetime. None of, us, none of us could ever repay him in our lifetime. We were always going to be slaves, no matter how much we could be making. So God comes and says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm sending my only son to here, and he is going to die. So he can pay your debt. Not only that... Once he paid your debt, I'm going to adopt you. And I'm going to give you a portion of my son's inheritance. Right? Says to Lisa over here, okay, I'm going to give you 2 billion bucks. And to Steve, I'm going to give you 4 billion bucks. And he comes to me, he tells me, I'm going to give you 200 million dollars. What is my reaction? That's unfair! How come I get 200 million, and she get 2 billion, and he get four? This is how we are. Yeah, yeah, your son died on the cross. Yeah, yeah, I owed you all this money. Yeah, but how come you gave them more than you gave me? That's unfair. Where's your justice? That's how we, this is how we behave. We behave this way, we react this way, we talk this way, we act this way. Yeah. How could God be selective? You mean, God loves John Paul II more than he loves me? Yeah. You bet. He loves Padre Pio more. Yeah, of course. Yeah. God can. God will. And he, our Lord himself, told us in the parable of the workers. Eight o'clock, a bunch of guys showed up. Come work in my field. I'll pay you your wage. Thank you. At noon, more guys show up. Come work in my field, and I'll pay you your wage. All right. All the way into four o'clock, there's the straggler showing up. Eating his banana at 4 o'clock, and he calls him in, What are you doing here and doing nothing? Come work my field. And he works an hour, one hour. And they all line up and they all got paid the same. So, what did the ones who started at 8 o'clock do? What? You're paying that guy the same as me? How dare you? It's unfair. And Jesus says, Friend, have I treated you wrongfully? Have I been unjust to you? Have you you not agreed to the wage? Or do you begrudge me, my generosity, and you don't want me to use it the way I want? What is behind this? What's really behind? What is the vice behind this? It's one of the worst. Envy. Envy. You do not want that guy who worked an hour to get what you got. It's the worst of them all. Envy. You understand? That's why it bugs us so much when we hear that God loves somebody else more than He loves us because it really hits on all, all these vices that are in our heart. But it's, that's the occasion for us to really work on humility. And if you want to grow in humility, there are two things that you need to do. First, you need to go to, commu- to confession uh, Every week, every week, you have to go to confession every week. And the second thing, you have to meditate on the passion of Jesus. The more you do those things, the more God will, will soften your heart. And if you can go do it before the Blessed Sacrament, it's even better. Okay, so let's finish what St. Paul was saying. Crucial in Romans 9.17, I have raised you, Pharaoh, up for the very purpose of showing my power in you. This is a a quotation from Exodus 9.16. I have raised you up. When he says to Pharaoh, I've raised you up, it doesn't mean I have have created you. It means I have not destroyed you. You stayed on the throne so that I may show my power in you. And today people complain, what, Mr. Obama is our president? It's a disaster. We become politicized. We think politics is the solution to our problem. And we don't understand that God raised him up so he may show his power in him. Because we don't understand that it is all Jesus is doing at the end of the day. That he guides the world for his greater glory. Okay. Very good. So let's um, let's move now to... Okay, one more, one more thing I want to quote to you from Roman, which is important. Many preachers and missionaries have used Romans 10, 14, and 15. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? That's St. Paul. Right? And that is why the church is a missionary church. Because you do understand, if they don't hear, they don't believe. They don't know. Where do they go? In all justice. Where do they go? To hell. Did you understand? Going to hell is not God being unjust. Because in all justice, all of us were condemned to hell. Going to heaven is God being mercy, merciful. And back to what I just told you, you cannot request, demand, order God to be merciful to all equally he could have decided and chosen that jesus would die only for israel and that would have been mercy he was not he did not have to die for all of us you you gotta you understand the power of this because this is the mystery of which saint paul speaks because up to this point it was god loves israel and that's it God saves Israel, and that's it. Jesus could have come, and saved only Israel. And the rest of us, would have been left out, and God would be just. Do you understand that? Okay. So, He depends on us, to be missionaries. That's why it's important for the church, to be a missionary church. Let's go to the last passage, Apocalyptic Deconstruction. So, what I want to show you is that there is a number of parallel. I mean, there there are parallel lines between what happens in Exodus and what happens in the Book of Revelation. In both cases, the seer, the one who receives a vision, so in both cases there is a vision. In both cases, the seer of the vision is persecuted by a ruler: Pharaoh in the case of Moses, Caesar in the case of Saint John. Both of them are exiled. Pharaoh is exiled to Midian. Saint John is exiled is, is exiled to um, uh, Patmos. Moses is exiled to Moses is exiled to uh, Midian, and Saint John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Both, while in exile, experience a call from God. In both cases, there is a divine revelation and an apocalypsis. apocalypse. Apocalypse. The word, the Greek word, apocalypse, is really used in the context of marriage. It is at the point where when the bride who is veiled during the ceremony and the groom come together into the tent and the bride or the groom lifts up the veil and reveal apocalypse, the bride and that's why the book of revelation is just as much about the church the church and our lady revealed by the groom as it is about the lord right so uh, an apocalypse is a revelation it's the uh, introduction of a new truth of something that is really deep that we have to know so in both cases there is a revelation Moses receives the name of the Lord in the burning bush. St. John sees the Lord of the burning bush and hears his divine title, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am who I am. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Same principle. Same uh, essential principle in both. Jesus warns the churches to expect further persecution. Pharaohs increased the yoke of the Israelites. In both cases we have the people of God undergoing persecution. God performs signs in the presence of Pharaoh for purpose of repentance, but instead Pharaoh hardens his heart. During the seals and the trumpets and the cups, we see consecutive waves of signs for purpose of repentance, but the unbelievers do not repent. Instead, they harden their hearts. All right. The land of Goshen is spared for some of the plagues and the blood of the Lamb seals the believers against the wrath of God while in the book of Revelation the believers are sealed by the angels. So in both cases there is a seal that happens to protect the people of God. And the purpose of the seals, trumpets and cups is to deconstruct, unroll the old world for the purpose of bringing in the new world, the church that comes down from heaven. And likewise, the purpose of the signs that God effect in Egypt is to deconstruct the Egyptian order and to replace it with something new. That is, he deconstructs the Egyptian religious system insofar the Israelites are concerned and will replace it with the worship that will be proposed and uh, introduced during the, um, the, the description of the tabernacle and the tent, all the liturgy that is, that is to come. So all these signs that are being performed are also serve as a pedagogical instrument to teach the Jews, hopefully, that the Egyptian religion is not what you thought it was. We need something better. Because it didn't protect them at the end of the day. They were praying to all these gods for health and fertility and life and this and then the other. And all these signs came and none of the gods were able to protect them. Therefore, they're fake. We shouldn't be believing in them. We need something better. And God was to introduce that something better later on. So you can see in both cases there's this apocalyptic deconstruction that happens in for the purpose of introducing something new and better. And that is a fundamental outlook we as Catholics must have on history. Instead, we let the world fill us with anxiety. The the power of the church, you see, we are not optimistic. We're not optimistic. We're realist. That's much stronger. We know what God is up to. He's not hiding that from us. He gave us the pattern. He told us what He will do. He is faithful to His Word. He will do it. Every time we go through a crisis, every time the church is threatened, by the way, throughout her history, the church was always threatened every time the church faces a seemingly insurmountable enemy powerful strong when, when Lenin was told or Stalin was told that the Pope was uh, condemned his action Stalin's answer was how many, uh, how many tanks does the Pope have that was his answer Right? The Pope's had no tanks. Where's Stalin now? We know what the pope is. Right? Every time a seemingly insurmountable power comes and riles against the church, God does something new. And that is, that is the source of our hope. It is not that we're, we're optimistic as if, oh, things will fix themselves. No, 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 no. God will take care of His own Meaning God will lead us safely to heaven and God will bring something new. I don't know who said that, but I think it's a beautiful little saying. Anxiety is a mild form of atheism. Anxiety is a mild form of atheism. So we don't believe, we're anxious. Do you understand? Yeah. So from all of this from all of this, the lesson for all of us is what? Number one, do not worry, do not measure your glory by your success. Do not measure your final destiny by your current success. That would be a wrong measure. God never used it. And we see it in the life of Our Lady and Life of Saint Joseph. Hmm? That's number one. Number 2 As long as you as long as you are sorrowful as long as you are desirous of heaven and willing to repent God will shower his mercy upon you always Number 3 This is a fleeting moment this whole life is so short it goes by in a in a in a blink of an eye it is so quick to go by this is boot camp this whole life is boot camp i know how hard it is for us to realize this because we're constantly focused on the things that we want the glittering things but it's boot camp so what do you do here? What's your purpose in this life? How do you spend your time well? You spend your time well by bringing others to God, by teaching them the truth, by your example, by your life, by your word, by your defense of the faith. Then that was time well spent. And that is something that will pay huge dividend in heaven. And the last but not least, Do not fear what you see around you. Do not worry about the economy. Do not worry about earthquakes and wars and any of this. Most of all, do not worry about death. It's actually rather silly to worry about death because it is the most certain thing event in your entire life. You will die. I'm telling you this with 100% certainty. You will die. Why are you worried about something that is going to happen? It's silly. Worry about the way you die. That's far more important. Yeah? Hmm. If you do these things, then you live, and throughout your life, you come to know the God who is abiding life in your life your daily experience, which is what we're really after. Yes? All right. Let's finish with the word of prayer and we'll take some questions. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Yes. That's a good point. No, I think the, the reflection was in the act itself. I mean, either you see it or you don't. If, if you see something that is happening, a phenomenon that could not be explained, you don't see it once. You see it six times in a row. You don't want to believe. Nothing will make you believe. Correct. So every sign that God gives really separates the, the believers from the non-believers. It has this polarizing effect every time he gives a sign. Yeah. Any other question? All right. Very good.